Okay. Um, hey, Burke. Hang on a sec. Hang on. Come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. Just come here. All right, everybody. I want. I want. I want you all to know something. Today is Tom Alley's birthday. What? Yeah. So come here. Charlie's serious. So get down here. Happy birthday. Stay right here. Okay, we, we are recording. So I, I, I need you all to know that uh, the people that are online that are watching this or that will watch the Bible study. This is Tom Alley. This is who I do mission work with every Saturday of my life. We go every single Saturday down to the projects. He started this nine years ago. He's missed two weekends in nine years. This is the most Christ-honoring person I know in the world, right here. And he has brought many, many people to Christ, and so I wanted to recognize him to the people on YouTube. So take a look right over the camera there, and uh, there you go. We love you, Tom. Happy birthday. To you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Tom Allen. Happy birthday to you. All right, now we, we've got to get going, so I'm going to get us started. Jim is not here to read, so I'm going to read. Um, I'm going to read um, Psalm 119, starting in verse 73, and uh, that's the Yud, your hands. And by the way, Yud uh, is uh, uh, the word hand is Yad. It's a derivative of the word Yud, and so uh, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let I pray your merciful kindness be for my comfort, according to your word, to your servant. Let your tender mercies come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood. But I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, those who know your testimonies, let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes, that I may not be ashamed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honor of coming here and uh, looking into your superior word, your precious gift from written right out of your mind and through the uh, prophets and apostles of the past who have given us these precious words to, uh, to know your heart and to know your wisdom and to grow in holiness and uh, to become more like you each day. And we long for the day when we see you in your fullness, radiating through Jesus Christ our Lord, the lamp who uh, will for all eternity show us your ceaseless, endless majesty. We thank you for what he did on the cross of Calvary. We thank you for every blessing that you've blessed each one of us with. And uh, Lord, there are some that are not here tonight that uh, are having physical problems or, or whatever uh, is wrong, and some that are traveling. We would pray for each one of them, and we would pray for anybody that is uh, watching this, that uh, if they have any troubles in their life, that you would search their hearts and uh, bring them to a state of fullness and uh, happiness and contentment as well. And you've given us all our time and place and position in this world. Help us not to squander it, but to bring you honor and glory through how we conduct our lives. And Lord, we commit this uh, hour and a half to you, and we love you, and we praise you, and we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, hi, right, come on in, ladies. Um, uh, okay, I, I was just handed something. I want to see what it is. Um, let's see here. It's from Burke. Um, uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he, he sent this to me, but um, I'm going to read this to you. Romans 1.14 states we are debtors under obligation, under contract to share the gospel. David Platt writes that Christ followers owe the gospel to those this side of hell. 
In Great Britain, three of four people under 30 years old have no association with God, church, or anything spiritual whatsoever. Uh, they call nuns, N-O-N-E-S. In the USA, it is um, now one of four, but we tend to follow their trend. In America, 80% of churches are not growing. 20% show growth, but 19% is from shuffling among churches. Only 1% if from new birth. The staggering figure is 90% of believers have never shared their faith, the gospel, with anyone outside of their family. Mm. So uh, consider that, that if you are a saved believer, and it's our job mm. to tell people about this, this side of hell, mm. then uh, as I say, the default position is not heaven. And uh, we talk about getting saved, and people don't understand that sa getting saved does not mean you're going to heaven. That's a benefit of getting saved. Getting saved is getting you out of something. You don't need to be saved. You don't need a savior if everything is okay. Jesus Christ came to get us out of something. And the default position is hell. So I'm glad you handed that to me. Um, before we get into uh, Romans uh, 1, uh, 15, we're going to start with um, tonight. Um, I, I uh, have two things to say. The first one is that Sergio and Rhoda set up a... Um, they're so conniving... They set up a, uh, uh, a um, I don't know what you call it, like an online chat before church. And there were, um, gosh, there were probably eight or ten people that I've never met that I, I've seen face-to-face -face now. We all chatted, and they wished me a happy Aww. birthday. And then there were many more on two separate channels, one on YouTube and one somewhere else. And he read me all of their birthday wishes, and I want to thank every one of them. It means the world to me that uh, we got together and we did that. It was it was. I wanted to cry. I got to tell you, I didn't. But I, 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 two of the ladies up in Buffalo, New York, held up a cake that said "Happy Birthday, oh, Charlie" on it, and they said, "We're going to have your cake tonight." <laughs> so thank everybody for that. All the wonderful people that I met for the first time, people uh, well, just all over, and I, I'm so thankful for that. So um, they are our church family. These are people that attend online Sundays, Thursday nights, and uh, uh, it, it, that meant the world to me. So I want to thank. Sergio and Rhoda for putting that together and for everybody that was a part of that. And I, I told them at the end of it, it was only 30 minutes long, my head actually hurts back here because I smiled so much. And when you, <laughs> it, so, wow. Um, and then the, the second thing that I want to do is um, last week we talked about um, salvation and uh, some people had questions about that. And you lost something off of your shoe down there. So you might want to grab that. Yes. Um, uh, there is, um, uh, they had some questions and... Uh, so I want to read. I typed something up. I generally tend to think better when I type because I think at the speed I'm typing. Uh, so here's what I have to say concerning some of those questions. Now, I received several questioning posts concerning the issue of salvation we talked about last week. There's one common thing, theme among all of them. Okay, so uh, this, is where, this is why we get into Bible studies is to understand right doctrine. And... Um, uh, I've, I've said this many times, and I'm going to explain it in this letter that I typed to myself for their benefit. Um, one of them uh, was about the five virgins. Okay, one of them, you know, uh, some of them had oil, some of them didn't have oil, and those, that, okay, all right. Um, one of them was a statement about Jesus in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, him saying, I never knew you, okay. Um, others were parables from Jesus. I had quite a few emails and questions, posts that were sent to me asking me, these things. The common thread in all of them, every single one of them, was that they were, these were spoken by Jesus. Jesus. 
Okay? And what is the problem with using that concerning our salvation? It's under Israel. the law. That's right. He was ministering to Israel under the law. He had not yet been crucified. And so this is why I, I adamantly say it again and again and again. You must get your church age doctrine from where? From the letters of Paul. You must. Because the th now the Gospel of John is a little bit different, and I've talked about that before, and people that have started with Romans may not know this if they miss the first um, Roman study. But um, uh, the, the Gospel of John is a little bit different. We can go through that again someday. But the three synoptic Gospels... Nothing, not a word, is said to the church in those three synoptic gospels that pertain to the church until after Christ was crucified and resurrected. Not a word. So if you mix in what he is saying, then you're going to have this, this, this dilemma in you because it says, well, you know, one thing is uh, saying this and another thing is saying this in Paul's letters. Paul says you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, you're eternally saved. But if you read Jesus, what he says, then suddenly you think, well, I don't understand. He's saying that, Lord, I never knew you. And how can that be? If I've called on Jesus and I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, because he is not speaking to the church about church age matters. The letters of Paul are where we get our church age doctrine. Okay, That doesn't mean that the Bible isn't written to us. Every word of the Bible is written to us, but not everything applies in the same way at the same time. So let me read what I have to say, then we'll get into 115. By the way, Mom, if I seemed a little distant when you came by this morning, I was so tired, I was, I was just about to go to bed. She came over and she brought me a, a bag full of my favorite cookies, and I'll eat one for the next, they, one a day, and they'll last me about two or three months, and then um, hopefully something else will come along by then. Christmas will be a little far away, but um, um, I, they are the best things in the world. What are they? What kind of they're biscotti, and they, they, you can leave them out because they're, they're real hard. They're not going to go bad. And they are my favorite thing. So thank you. And I was just so tired. I, I had just gotten home from work. I'd been mowing and at work, and I just needed to go take a nap. And so anyway, wanted to apologize about that. But let me read this. The common thread in all of these is uh, they were spoken by Christ under the law prior to his crucifixion. He could not speak of church issues as the church did not yet exist. The new covenant was not in effect. He had not died for our sins. Until Christ was crucified, there was no hope except to either live out the law perfectly or to accept God's temporary provision of the Day of Atonement. Year by year, they had that for the people of Israel. They're the only people in the world that had that, and nobody else had it. But they had to either be perfect under the law, which they weren't, and hence they had a Day of Atonement, and then they needed to confess. And the Bible makes it clear that if they didn't go down and abase themselves and fast, they got no atonement that year. Okay, So that's the way that the law worked for them. But once again, it was never by works. It was always by grace because the Day of Atonement was a day of grace. Go on. Now in Christ there is forgiveness. There is full atonement, full pardon, and we stand justified by faith. I hope everybody here understands that. It's not nothing that Jesus said to Israel spoke of any of these matters. It is Paul who explains them to us. We stand justified by faith. Anything beyond faith is not faith. We cannot mix dispensations and come up with sound theology. All right? This is why, as I've said numerous times, we must obtain our church age doctrine from Paul. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, and it is his message which explains our state before God. He was given his commission in Acts chapter 9. If you go read that, go. This is the one that's going to carry my message forward. All right? If you take nothing else away from our class tonight, remember this single precept. We stand justified once and for all by faith in the work of Christ 
Now grace has come. Now we are freed from the debt which hung over us. Our perseverance is Christ. We don't need to persevere. He has done the work for us. Our perseverance is Christ. It is not up to us to keep, to save ourselves or to keep saving ourselves. He is the author of eternal salvation for all who believe. Dispensationalism is the only answer how to reconcile these varied passages in Scripture. So, let us hold on to God's sure promises and pursue His Word in that proper context. The lesser issues and disputes we can face and we can overcome with civil discourse. If we disagree on the book of Acts, we can overcome that. We go through a study, which we did for three years, to overcome anything that we may have disagreed on. All right? But if we mix dispensations then there can be no resolution to why what Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels or what later uh, the later epistles after Paul state when written to the Jews, marked for the end times. That's why they come after Paul's letters, is because the structure of the Bible shows us redemptive history. Once you leave Paul's writings, the first book is Hebrews, and then James, written to the Jews, and they are written, believe it or not, to the Jews of the end times. How are you doing tonight? All right. Um, if you do that, it doesn't square up with what Paul says in his epistles. You say, well, this says this and this says this. It's because you're mixing dispensations. The dispensational model gives us the church age, and that age, which we are now living in, is defined by the letters of Paul. God's grace has come, and it has come because of what Christ did for us, his work. If we attempt to add to that, we stand opposed to the very meaning of grace. Each of us must continually ask ourselves, what more could I do to be justified and saved before God than what Christ did? If Christ died on the cross and he, Paul says that we are justified by that act, what more can we do? If I have to do something to keep being saved, if I can lose my salvation, then that means nothing. That means that it is not of grace and it is of works because even after salvation, if you have to keep your salvation, it wasn't of grace at all. It was of works, and it is of works, and it cannot be. Either that is sufficient or it is not. So when people email me, we have debates on YouTube, somebody will say something, they always bring in either the Synoptic Gospels, or they bring in James, or they bring something that doesn't square with what Paul says, because they are mixing dispensations. If you do that, you have no standing at all in what the Bible says about our church age position. We live by faith and not by sight. That's why I don't believe in somebody asked me about extra biblical revelation this week. I don't believe in it because we live by faith and not by sight. We don't need extra biblical revelation. That comes from people <laughs> taking the book of Acts and making it prescriptive rather than descriptive. When Peter is speaking to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, he's not speaking to the, the Gentiles. He's speaking to the Jews who are coming out of the law. And that has a further application in the end times, but that's something we'll talk about some other day. It does not ap apply to the Gentiles in the church. You have to, who is he speaking to? Why is he saying these things? Is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? Those were descriptive passages. Okay, let's go on. Um, um, yeah, if the cross wasn't sufficient to keep, and keep on saving, then there is no hope at all. That's all there is to it. If what Jesus Christ did for you and I, and we received that, and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that isn't sufficient, we have no hope. We might as well not even be in Bible study tonight. Everybody agree with that? Good. I'm glad everybody understands that, because it is Christ and Christ alone 
who justifies us, who brings us to a state of full sanctification, and who will glorify us someday. There's nothing that we can do. Now, we can progressively work cleansing ourselves to be you know, more holy in the presence of God and more sanctified, but it is Christ who actually does the sanctification. He says, I accept this, and I accept that you are doing these things. So one way or another, it is all about Christ. Uh, to close, trust in Christ, rest in Christ, and be pleased that God has written your name in heaven because of Christ. Hallelujah to the Lamb that was slain. Hallelujah to the risen Christ. Okay? That's my thoughts about that issue, and uh, uh, I just want to make sure that everybody understands we are in Paul, and we are starting with Paul in Romans, and we're going to go all the way through, hopefully, unless somebody wants to do something else, till we get done with Paul's letter in Onesimus. I'm sorry, Philemon, writing about Onesimus. And the reason why is because we will have proper church age doctrine. It might take us 20 years to get through those letters, but we'll get through them. So, uh, yes, sure. I know that we're only saved through Jesus Christ, but he saved us for a purpose, right? Doesn't he? Have oh, absolutely. That he but what does that bear on? Does that bear on our salvation? No. Okay, it bears on? It's just rewards. Rewards yeah. and losses. Right. That's right. He has given, and that's why I say, Paul gives us commands. He gives us exhortations. He gives us things that will help us to, one, live right in this life. He says, don't do this thing. Why? Because if we do, we're going to end up dead. We're going to end up, you know, in a bad way, whatever. So it pertains to this life. But further, it also pertains to our heavenly rewards. Is it worth sacrificing all of our eternity, having a lesser position or a lesser reward or whatever is going to happen when we are judged by Christ, you know, to not be obedient to the Bible? Is it worth it? No. Is it worth it? No, it's not. And that's why I question people that stand in the pulpit that are actually in disobedience to God's word when they're standing there. And I'm not talking about things that you do that are stupid, which I do daily. I'm talking about being disobedient to the word while in the pulpit, okay? While they're there, they shouldn't be there for whatever reason, and there they are doing it, okay? Everything that we do is based on what Paul has said. It governs our church age doctrine and it is based on rewards and losses. But you're absolutely right. There are things that we should do. It doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. All right? Somebody asked about what about uh, one of the questions I had was, what if somebody apostatizes? They walk away from the faith. Well, that's very easy to answer. And I'm going to take you real quickly to that. What happens if you have somebody that's sexually immoral in your church? What are you to do? What's that? Judge them. Judge them. Okay, and where is the guidance for that? Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read it to you. Um, he says, um, this guy's doing something bad. He, I'm absent, uh, even though I'm uh, absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. I've already um, made a judgment about this. Uh, and then he goes on, four, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, let, let the devil have the, his way with him in this life. Why? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He never questions the guy's salvation. His spirit's going to be saved, but let him get him out of the, the church so he doesn't affect other people. Well, guess what? That exact same terminology, and I may not be able to find it really quickly, but um, uh, it's uh, dealing with... Um, uh, da, 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 it's, uh, what are their names? Hymenius and... Oh, yeah. um, uh, where is that? Is it in uh, No, it's either in um, uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy, oh. 2 Timothy, or in Titus. And he speaks about Hymenus, and it says they have shipwrecked their faith. They've walked away from the faith, and he says the exact same terminology as he says with um, uh, the guy that we just spoke about. He says, I've handed them over to Satan. 
right? In other words, he never questions their salvation. He just says they're going to be, be living miserable lives because they're not living for the Lord Jesus. If anybody finds that, it's either in uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or um, um, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Is that where I'm looking for? Um, hello, how are you? Come here, I need to talk to you about something. Come up here. Yeah, whoops. Here. Oh, just, I missed it so you much. You missed your, your thermos. Okay. Um, no, it's not my birthday. It's somebody else's. Um, anyway, if somebody sees that, please just pull it out and let me know because um, I should have written it down and uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. But anyway, it's in either 1, 2, uh, Timothy, or in Titus. And the guy's name is Hymenaeus and one other person. And he says that they walked away from the faith. They've shipwrecked their faith. And yet he doesn't question their salvation. He says exactly the same thing as uh, 1 Corinthians 5. I've handed them over to Satan. Okay, anyway, so just so you know that, if you find it, just call it out. We're going to get into uh, Romans now. But you cannot lose your salvation. Don't let anybody ever tell you that. If they tell you that, they are taking verses out of context. They're misapplying them from a wrong dispensation or from, as I said, James is written to who? It's written to the Jews, to the tribes of the dispersion, right? not writing to the church. He's writing to a group of people for a specific reason that has nothing to do Charles, with Paul's letters to us. Yes, ma'am? I'm sorry. Try on 1 Timothy 1.19. Uh, oh, what, 1 Timothy 1.19. I should have looked at the beginning, not the end. I was trying to read his end thoughts, but 1 Timothy 1.19. And um, let's see, is that what? Yeah, here we go. Start in verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have shipwrecked, suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may not learn to blasphemy. Okay? These are people that have completely walked away from the faith. They've shipwrecked their faith. They're blaspheming the faith, and yet Paul doesn't question their salvation. He says, I simply handed them over to Satan, which is the same terminology used with the guy in 1 Corinthians 5, saying they will suffer because of this, they, to their own detriment. But they believed, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Paul acknowledges that EOS to me. That's all there is. So, um, it, once again, and my logic is, and people try to refute it, and it never comes out proper, is that if you believe, which is what Paul says, you believe, the moment you believe you are sealed with the Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, okay? He says, and that is our guarantee. What are the two things that if that's not, if we can lose our salvation? One, the guarantee was, it was not a good, very good guarantee. In fact, it was a crummy one. And two, God made a, yeah, God made a mistake. Let God be true and every man a liar. God makes no mistakes. He doesn't lie. He doesn't err. If you believe and you receive, and I'm not talking about people that make false professions. That's not for me to question. It is not my job to say you are not a saved Christian. If they say I believed in the Lord Jesus, I can do no more. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about people that have actually believed, that are truly saved, as Paul seems to believe with Alexander and, or whatever and Hymenaeus. Mm -hmm. He believed they're saved, and so he says, hand them over to Satan. Yes? That one church in Revelation, is he talking to a church as a group? Yes, because yes, because people use... And poor and have need of nothing. He says, spew you out of his mouth. He says, that's right. I advise you to buy from me gold. He, you were so right. And that's people. something that people need to understand. When he is speaking to the churches in Revelation, who is he speaking to? Believers. The churches in Revelation. He's not speaking to individuals. 
He's speaking to a church. If you don't do this thing, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. He's talking to the church. Think of the Episcopal Church. There are probably still one or two saved people in the Episcopal Church, right? But there are people that are not saved all through the church. And eventually he's going to say, I, I am done with this church. The lampstand is pulled. But they, they are saved. They, those the, guys, the people in the church are. The, the people in the church are saved. It is the people, it is the church he's speaking to, the oh. overall group. And I have had people quote that one to me a million times. And I say, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to a group. So, very good. I'm glad you brought no, that I was up. asking as a question, kind of, not as, not as knowledge. No, but you're right. You're absolutely right, is that he is speaking to a collective group of people, not individuals. Now, he does in, let me read that to you right now. Here's what he says in um, uh, Revelation, I think it's 1, uh, it might be Revelation 2. And then we've got to get into Romans, or we're never going to get into uh, Romans. But it says right here in uh, Revelation um, uh, uh, chapter 3, I said 1, but it's not. It says um, um, 3, it says, give me just one, yeah. Sardis. Yeah, Sardis, he says in uh, 3, 4. Yet you have, a, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not, he's talking now about individuals, have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Okay? In other words, the church may lose its lampstand, but those people will not lose their salvation. They are washed in the blood of the Lamb, their garments are white, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The guarantee is a guarantee, it's not a lie, God did not make a mistake, end of deal. EOS, okay? So, um, it, it, I say EOS, and if you don't know what that means, it means end of story with me. I, I, I'm done with it. So, and I don't mean that I'm not done with talking to people about it. I'm saying in my mind, it's a done deal. We have to keep things in context, and we have to take our church age doctrine from the author of church age doctrine. Yes? And 316, uh, the same thing. Yes, 316 says the same thing. That's that's right. That's it does. It, where it spew you out of my mouth. That's right. It will spew you out of my mouth. 316. So, there we go. We've, we've got, um, and that was speaking to the church. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, where are we? Romans 1 15. All right? Um, well, we took 30 minutes. Um, 1 15. There are, uh, oh, let me read the verse first. Romans 1 uh, verse 15. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome, or in Rome also. All right? So, uh, we kind of, uh, let me go back and read 14 so we understand why he said that. Um, I'll go to 13. I, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So he's telling him why he wants to come. He eventually did get there. We saw that next. But um, uh, my comments, uh, there are very few that truly mean what Paul states here. You know, I meant to come to you, or I meant to do this and that. Paul meant it. He, he's, in other words, he, what is the old saying? The road to heck is uh, paved with good intentions. That was not Paul. Okay, uh, there are very few that truly mean what Paul states here. But when we see them, we can tell almost immediately what sort of a person they are. As much as is in me means that with every fiber of his being, every calorie that he had taken in, he will expend it all for calling the calling to which he's been called to. This then reflects as much on the Lord as it does on Paul. Whatever the Lord gives to him, this is what he will return to the Lord. If somebody's laying in a bed with uh, whatever, I, what would keep you in bed forever? Um, uh, being paralyzed, okay? That's what the Lord has given them. 
You can't expect them to go out and evangelize people, and you get, but they have something they can do for the Lord. The Lord has allowed them the honor of being in that bed for whatever reason. I, a perfect example, and I bring her up from time to time because we should all be ashamed standing in the presence of this person when we're standing in the presence of the Lord, is um, Johnny Erickson Tata, right? She's, she is 17, I think, dives into the water, breaks her neck. She's completely paralyzed. She can't do anything with her life just put her in a room and let her sit there for the next 60 years of her life, right? No, she has been around the entire world, tireless, telling people about Jesus, has a wheelchair ministry where she gets people that are uh, paralyzed, wheelchairs in Vietnam, right? She, she, it takes her three hours to get ready every day. Her husband has to spend three hours with her getting her ready. She gets bed sores that are so painful. You know, I've got this cold sore now for, 10 days, they usually last seven. I still have it. And you know, I'm like, I can't eat and I'm poor as me, right? This lady has bed sores, debilitating bed sores. And she gets up and she goes and she works, you know? So here we are, we've got full bodies and we say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm too busy to go out and tell somebody about Jesus today, right? What a shame, what a crying shame. She and had breast cancer too. Breast <laughs> cancer as well. I mean, you know, but she's got stamina. She speaks eloquently. She loves the Lord. Somebody that when we're standing there, we can all just make a little path for her to walk up to Christ and receive her body and to be given her heavenly rewards. That's the kind of person she is, right? Anyway, so, but some people don't have that. They, they, they literally cannot leave the bed. But the Lord has got them where he wants them for whatever reason. And Paul was a person that had his own physical debility, and yet he was used by God. He overcame that. You know, people would lead him. You, we read that in the book of Acts where people would lead him down to the ocean. They'd lead him here and we'd lead him there. We know that he had something that he could not be alone. But he, with every fiber of his being, he would expend himself for the people that he loved. All right, so here we go. Um, uh, whatever the Lord gives to him, this is what he will return to the Lord. We know that Paul had a thorn in the flesh, right? That says it in um, uh, 2 Corinthians twelve seven. He says this, um, uh, and we did talk about this in the, the Acts Bible study, but I'll give my thoughts on it real quickly. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 says, um, uh, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. All right, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Think of Johnny Erickson Tata. Perfect example. The power of Christ rests on her because she is resting in her infirmity. She's allowing Christ to work through what she has been granted. Okay, what a high honor if you think about it. This is a real temporary life. Think of the eternal. So anyway, um, my thought on Paul is, and it doesn't mean it's right. It's just something that we may be able to infer from Scripture. You know, some people say that, uh, well, he had a, I've actually read these commentaries, he had a sexual problem. And so that's what he carried as an infirmity. I don't know how they came to that conclusion. <laughs> yeah. They did try to defend it, and it didn't make any sense to me. Other people say, yes, yes, that's, and I'll get to that. Um, other people have said that he had um, uh, uh, you know, a physical uh, infirmity where he couldn't walk well, and because that's, you know, he's being conducted. But what Linda just said is what I believe it is, is he had an eye infirmity. But before I tell about the eye infirmity, the reason why... It isn't specified in the Bible. Is why? Why do you think? They didn't have doctors. No, no, no. Say it again. 
Because if he said, I have an eye infirmity, oh, infirmity okay. then everybody without an eye infirmity would say, well, then it doesn't apply to me. Right. We don't know what his infirmity was because it applies to everybody. We all have some infirmity in our life, and yet we can overcome it to some extent, right? So I'm missing a brain, but I overcome it by reading the Bible day after day. And so what little P I have in there is actually reminded of these things because I forget. I just do. Anyway, um, Paul, how did he close his letters? He wrote with very large letters. Oh, right. He would have a scribe write the letter, and then he said, see with what large letters I write with. This is how I sign all my letters. What does that imply? Bad eyesight, right? Because when you have bad eyesight, you write big. I'm writing bigger every day. Um, so um, it, he was standing in the room with the high priest, and the high priest said, go strike him. And he said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And then somebody said, how dare you revile God's high priest? And he says, I didn't know it was the high priest, right? Well, he's standing in the same room. So obviously he couldn't see well enough to recognize him or he was being sarcastic, right? Because the guy had him struck, which he wasn't allowed to do, right? Anyway, um, he also, um, uh, a couple other things. Uh, the Galatians, when the Galatians departed from the faith, what did he say? You would have plucked your eyes out for me. And now, right? Okay, well, why would he say that? You know, if you had a bad arm, they would have said, well, you would have given me my right arm. But he used the eyes. So there are many clues about Paul that would lead us to believe that Paul had bad eyesight. But it doesn't say that. And so because it doesn't say that, it can apply to anybody for any circumstance. Okay? Um, so uh, going on, um, this thorn, oh, I even wrote it down, uh, may have been failing eyesight. And, uh, I say he spoke harshly to the high priest. Um, let me see. A congregation uh, plucked out their own eyes. His letters were very distinct because of the large letters. So I, I covered all three of those, but there it is. Um, whether this thorn in the flesh was his failing eyesight or something else entirely, it was a limitation placed on him to keep him reliant on the grace of the Lord and not to trust in himself. Therefore, his ability to proclaim the gospel was both by Jesus' grace and in accord with his care of the opportunities and abilities that he had been given. This is the life of Paul and one to which we have been called, if we will only respond. Every person here has been called to tell about Jesus. Thank you, Burke, for bringing that in this morning. How many people, or this afternoon, how many people have we told about Jesus, right? That's why it's such a refreshing breath of air to go to the projects with Tom every Saturday, is because it reminds me that I have a responsibility. I got a guy here, just so you know, I, I, most of you don't know this, unless you've been down to the projects with us. Tom doesn't talk a lot to these people, but what he does do is he's got a red bag. He's been carrying it now for nine years, and it's gross. I mean, it, probably if you were to put a match next to it, it would explode. But he's been carrying this red bag for nine years, and there's full of candy every week. And I'm telling you what, that little red bag has brought more people to the Lord than I think any other red bag on the planet. You know, everybody knows it. They see the guy with the red bag and they come running. All the children say, it's Candyman. Every single week, you got 50 or 60 kids running up. And But there are times where they will run up and they'll say, you know, Tom will pull out the candy and they'll say, we don't want that. What do they say? Pray. They want to pray. Little children, because they know that we're there to pray with them and they say, we'll take the candy later. We want to pray with you first. And we have people that if they we miss them, we miss them in their house, and they know that we've already been by because it's that time of day. They'll do what? Don't make me say it. They'll get in their car. and they'll, No, they'll, not for the candy man. They'll get in their car, and they'll drive around so that they'll stop and pray with us. 
Right there. I mean, they, they will actually get in the car and they'll drive and they'll say, we know we missed you because Tom throws the candy in their doorway. They'll get in their car and they'll come looking for us just to pray with us. And that's happened, I'm telling you. And so, but Tom will pray with them. Jim will pray with them. I'll pray with them. And John Houlihan, who comes sometimes, will pray with them. And then if we know that this person hasn't heard the gospel, one of us will stay behind. It's never good to talk about Jesus with four people ganged around you. Because if you do that, it's intimidating, and you're going to scare people off. So one of us will stay behind, and we'll talk about Jesus, about how to get saved, and you know what you need to do, and the other three people will just be walking down the road. It's not good to have a bunch of people when you're witnessing. Everybody understand that? You know, Ray Comfort has to do it because he's got his camera, and there's a couple guys, but that has to be intimidating. And so, uh, you know, if you're going to do it, the, the, the right way to witness to somebody is one-on-one. -on -one. Watch their eyes. If you need to change your tact, change your tact. Um, I've told a couple people here, I talked to one lady from England one day, and I was standing very close to her and her husband, and within uh, two minutes of talking to her, she had backed up at least six paces. She was so convicted of her sin that she had backed way, way away from me. And the husband was watching, and he was understanding it, and she was just, she was just like... I'm on fire here. So it, you, you have to watch people and know how to respond to that because some people, you know, you, you're losing their attention. Their eyes will wander. But this is our job. This is what we're called to do. All right. So, um, uh, and, and Tom is a master at it. He, he's just nine years of practice and we've got it down in the projects. Thank you, Tom. Um, anyway, um, uh, Paul was always ready to... Uh, I think I skipped something. No, I didn't. Paul is always ready to preach the gospel. There is no other message which can bring salvation, and there is no other path to God. Verse John 14, 6, thank you. Yes. Um, there's no other path to God. Paul understood the immensity of this, and therefore he used everything that he was and every gift that he possessed to spread the message. And his intent for the days ahead was to do so for those who were in Rome also. He wanted, I don't know, it's somebody's. Um, uh, he wanted to make sure that the people in Rome uh, also had the chance to hear Paul's message of the gospel of Christ. So um, don't worry about that. They have to have their phone going. You know, they're down here moving right now. So it's important he doesn't miss that. Um, he was a man on a determined course, as the Bible bears witness. He was reviled for his preaching. He was stoned for his testimony. He was mocked and jeered for proclaiming the truth. He was imprisoned several times, and eventually history tells us that he was martyred for his Lord. Is this what we're willing to face? Anybody here willing to die for the cause of Christ? He was. Um, each of us will stand before the throne of Christ's glory and will give an accounting for our time and our gifts, and so let us be ready to face him with a life that was full of love, faith, and service in his name. Anything? 115? All right, 116. Um, four, ooh, best words. Oh, my, my hair's standing up. Look at that. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. All right, 116. In the Greek, Paul begins with the word not. Ugar epai Not for I am ashamed of. It's emphatic, in other words. Not. In other words, what he begins with as a negative is the most positive statement of his life, beliefs, and actions. For refers to what he has just said about being ready, as much as in me, to preach the gospel. For, as much as in me, 
I am not ashamed to preach this gospel. He was willing to expend himself to the very end of the sake of this, uh, for the sake of this good news. I am not ashamed is a theme throughout his writings and tells us that what he is proclaiming certainly seemed ridiculous and even ignominious to the world, or there would be no reason to be ashamed. People feel shame over making mistakes. We feel ashamed when we're caught doing something we shouldn't do. We feel ashamed when we're found naked. We feel shame when we don't measure up in one way or another. Shame is something that is tied to that which is regarded as disgraceful or dishonorable. And Paul looked around him and saw the world that the world perceived his life and actions in this way. In 1 Corinthians 4, 12 and 13, he cites his perceptions of how he was seen. Let me read them to you. 1 Corinthians uh, 4, 12 and 13. I'm in 2 Corinthians. You've got to be in the right book there, Charlie. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, 12 and 13. He says, um, did I say 12 and 13? I want to make sure I'm going to read the right verses before I get started. 11, um, yeah, 1 Corinthians 4. I'll start at 11. To this present hour, we are both, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. And yet he continued going on. And you think of the world, right? You think of what's going on in the world right now where we have people that, uh, uh, this new thing about everything which is immoral is considered moral. And who are the losers on that end as far as society is concerned? That's right, us. We hold to a moral standard and all of a sudden we are what Paul is writing about. It's not that far off, and it's coming daily because we have a president that is pushing this. We've got an administration which is behind him. We've got Congress that will do nothing about it. We've got a Supreme Court that is completely caved on all moral issues. And we are the recipients of the bad end of that stick, and we have to be ready to say what Paul said. I'm the off-scouring of the earth. You take your skin and you brush it off in the shower and all that gross stuff goes down the drain. That's what he's saying. We're the off-scouring of the earth, but I am going to endure in this race that's set before me. This is the mind of Paul, all right? Despite this, ooh, it's raining out there, wow. Despite this, he was completely unashamed of his life and conduct because they centered on the gospel of Christ. This is the good news. It is the message of salvation to a world of lost people who are destined for only one place. There's only one place that the world's going to go without Christ, and that is hell, right? Paul understood that without this message, there's only one moment of existence which ends in death and condemnation. There's no other way out of this, and therefore the message is of paramount importance to the people of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. When somebody, everybody know what a psalm of imprecation is? Imprecatory. Imprecatory. That means I'm calling down a curse on somebody, right? And David was famous for this, and I have no problem. I have no problem with that type of a psalm. He says, break their teeth in their mouth, O Lord. Curse them that they may be cursed. And, you know, that was a misquote of that. But anyway, you understand. He, he goes through. There are more psalms of imprecation than there are of blessing and of praise. I'm telling you. Now, at the end of them, they always praise God. They always come to back to a, a, a right standing before they end. But David was utterly angry at the perverse nature of the people of the world and the enemies of God. And we have no reason to not feel that way as well. None. That doesn't mean that we don't go up to those people and tell them about Jesus. But if they reject the message and they become completely depraved in their minds and you're never going to change their minds, it's not our job any longer to... to, to share. That's right. Let the Lord deal with them. 
and you, I have no problem with psalms of imprecation. They pertain as much today as the day that David wrote them because the enemies of God are many. But it's still our job to go out and to try to save people from the pit of hell, okay? There's like a, a, a balance that you need to find in this. You can't just curse people away because you don't like them. You'd want to see boring Obama come to Christ because it would make a huge impression on the people of the world. It's not likely going to happen, but we can pray for it. And at the same time, we can ask for a curse to be upon him for the things that he has done and the perversion that he has brought around. It goes both ways, and we have to decide at what point am I going to say this and at what point am I going to pray about this. Each person is going to be different, but David defended the honor of the Lord at the, at the, the sake of his enemies. No doubt about it. Read the Psalms from that perspective, and you will see that. Anyway, um, uh, let me see here. Um, he then specifically explains the gospel message by telling us that it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who who is regenerated by the Spirit in order to believe, and then they believe, but they can lose that salvation, right? No, no. doesn't say that. It is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. There's no regeneration of the Spirit in order to being saved, because if that's the case, and you have the Spirit before you believe, and therefore you don't need the Spirit after you believe. That is crazy theology. I know that people don't like when I say oh, that's crazy because it diminishes other Christians. I'm sorry. It doesn't make any sense to say that. And it makes no sense to say that you can lose what God has given you. If it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes, and then I can do something to lose that, then it wasn't my faith that saved me being bestowed by the grace of God, right? It is by grace you are saved through faith. That's the only thing we can offer to God, and it's not a work. I'm, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there, and I'm going to go to Romans chapter 3. Real quickly, I want to read you something so that you can see that... Um, um, Faith is not a work, because people try to say that to you all the time. Anybody have that, where they say, well, if it's faith, then that's a work, and you're doing something, and so the Holy Spirit is regenerating you in order to believe, and that's the only way you can be saved, right? Has anybody heard that? What if somebody says you have to die every day to yourself and be doing what God That has nothing to do, that is completely taken out of context. We'll get there someday. All I'm doing right now is to say that, that faith is not a work. Yeah. Okay, has anybody here heard that your faith is a work and therefore your faith is given to you by God? I've heard that many I've times. Heard, I've Salvation heard the faith that you have to believe in him is a gift of God. That's right. It is a gift of God. It, the entire process is a gift of God. Okay, faith is not a work. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 3. In case anybody tries to uh, pull that one over on you. Where is boasting then? I'm in verse 27. Is it excluded? By what law? Of works? No but by the law of faith. So if it's a law of faith and not works, then faith can't be a work. In one verse, he tells you that faith is not a work. Romans 3.27, okay? So don't ever let anybody say, well, then, you know, God doesn't get the glory if he didn't regenerate you in order to believe. Of course he does. He actually gets more glory because he is saving you rather than saving you in advance. He is saving you based on your faith. You see the good in him. You reach out for that faith, which is, doesn't mean there's any good in you. I'm not trying to say that, but you see the good in God, which is something that we were given in Genesis chapter 3. We have the knowledge of good and evil. We say, I want that, and God graciously gives it to us unmerited. Faith is not a work. Yes, sir? 328. 328 as well. Let me read it, okay? Um, uh, what is boasting then? Is it, it is excluded by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. 
Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. That brings in something I talked about a week ago, which people always argue is James 2.24. I'm not going to talk about it again because I talked about it in the past, but James 2.24 says we're justified not by works alone, but by uh, by faith alone, but by works. It just proves once again, once again I will explain it very quickly. I'm not going to get into any details. Is that that work that James cites, he gives two examples of it, is what? The work is faith. The, he cites Rahab the harlot, and he cites Abraham, and both of them, it says in Romans 11, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11, which happens to come before James, by the way, that by faith Abraham, and by faith Rahab. So even the work that James is talking about is a work of faith, okay? And I, I've gone through that, so I'm not going to go through it again, but it has nothing to do with your salvation. It has to do with your, your yes, your rewards, your growth in Christ, etc., that is the justification he is speaking about. Because Romans answered the question, I, I keep saying Romans, Hebrews answered the question before he brought it up. By faith Abraham, by faith Charlie Garrett, by faith Dale, and by faith Linda, and all of us, by faith. Faith is not a work. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Okay? That is the process. I, 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 I can't stress this enough. Because I'm going to get 15 emails tomorrow saying, but I don't understand. It says this, and it says this. It is by faith that you were saved. By grace, through faith, and that not of yourself. Your faith is not a work. Yes? Do we all receive the gift of faith at birth? I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say we we have free will, but at birth, we are not in a state well, of understanding not, it intellectually. No, as as we, we it is a product. Yes. The gift of faith. Well, yeah. We all receive, that's, that's, I will agree with that. We all receive the gift of faith as being a human being. Right. We are a human being. And I can say I have faith that I'm not going to do it, right. but I have faith that I'm going to sit in this chair and it's not going to collapse. Mm -hmm. so, I have faith that if I pull on that door and I see a bunch of people sitting there, it's going to open. It's not going to be that's kept out. Process. That's right. That is something and that we inherit as human beings. In a we, way, we learn process because as we read the word, we learn that is that correct. Gives us faith. That is correct. That's why she said, yeah. "By uh, faith comes by hearing, and by hearing, hearing, by, hearing the by the word of God." That's right. Is we learn to have faith, faith. in things by practicing. If I put my hand on a hot stove as a little child, what's going to happen? That's right. But if I see later that same thing, I'm going to have faith enough to say I'm not going to do that. And if I don't see the red glow, I'm going to have faith that I can put my hand there. It's by experience that we obtain the faith that we were given from birth. You're absolutely right about that. That that is a part of our human nature. Faith is granted to us as a part of who we Yeah, because Genesis chapter 3, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And we can't understand it until we have experienced it. And as we experience those things, it is... It, it is worked into us as who we are. And that's why she said if we're reading the Bible, the more we read it, the more we're going to have faith in what it says. When you're, is that why Paul said, I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded? Persuaded, because the Bible is a persuading instrument. The Word of God is a persuade. He is able. That's right. But how can you have that? And so uh, that's another point. That, real quickly, we have faith to believe. I hear the message, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. Jesus Christ can do that. I want Jesus, I believe, I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit, it's done. But that doesn't mean, I had somebody today email me about, guess what? Creation. This is a person, she says, how do I defend 
that I understand the, the world could be 6,000 years old, but what about the stars? They're 250 million light years away, and that light took 250 million years to get to here. How can that be? How can that be that the universe is 6,000 years old? And she wasn't questioning that. She simply wants to be able to defend it. And so I gave her the Isaiah. Yes, it says that uh, he, by his wisdom, he spread out the heavens. And in the Psalms, it says he spoke and it stood firm, right? These, or yeah, it came to be. So God has done these things. And if he put a star out there 250 million light years away, however far, I don't know. I'm just saying. And we can see that star. Do you think that he was wise enough to also put the light from that star in the process? When he created Adam, he created Adam as a man, 30 years old. He had the appearance of being 30 years old, right? When he created the trees, it says he made the tree with the, the fruit and the, the seed and the fruit, right? Everything was a unit. He didn't just make a seed and say, I'm going to plant this and have it come out. But even if he did, what does a seed need in order to grow? Sunshine. Soil, sunshine, all of those things, right? So if there is soil and soil is organic matter that came from what? Dead trees? Yeah. Then there is a infinite regress of dead trees that needed to be there. You know, the tree was, uh, it grew, it fell down, it dropped its leaves, soil was produced. And so then you have the branches fall down, they decay, and then another tree comes up out of that. And you've got this whole process which God just simply said, I'm going to create it as if it is. I'm going to create the stars out there. I'm going to create the light from the star, just like Adam. When he went down to the DMV, then he said, I want to get my driver's license. And they said, you're not old enough. He's only a day old, right? But in fact, he looked 30 years old. The tree was never there. And yet everything to have that tree with the seed inside has the appearance of maybe 300-year-old tree. I have no problem with this. I'm not saying it's correct, but that's how I see these things, is that God says that he created in six days. Who am I to disbelieve that? I understand people disagree with that, and I have no problem with people disagreeing with that. I've read long-term evolution, I've heard, or, or creation, I've heard short-term creation, I've heard all of the arguments. All I know is that the Bible says six days. It says that he created Adam on the first day, Adam, man and woman on the first day on Genesis 1, and then, uh, I'm sorry, on the sixth day in Genesis 1, I'm thinking of Genesis 1, the sixth day Genesis 1, and then in Genesis 2, which is an explanation of what he did, it says there in the middle of it that not everything was good. It is not good for man to be alone. And yet at the end of the first day, it says that everything was very good. So it has to be one literal day. Adam had a son named Seth when he was 130 years old. That means everything on this universe had to have been done within 130 years, years from the time that Seth was born. Now you've got to subtract the growing up of Seth. You've, I'm sorry, of Cain and Abel, the killing of them, all of that. You backdated even more. You're down to how many years? If God can do it in that many years, he can certainly do it in a day, right? We don't need to have confusion in our theology. Did Moses believe that God created in six literal days? I guarantee it. How about Paul? I guarantee it. God wasn't hiding anything from them. It's us being scared of looking stupid in front of the world and saying, oh, you know, the world's going to think I'm a nut if I believe in a six-day creation. And if you don't agree with that, that's fine. I, I don't argue it. I just give you my opinions. And if you have a long-term view... Tell people. I, that's fine. I have no problem with that at all. I just am a literalist when it comes to the biblical account. Jesus spoke of a literal Noah who literally got on a boat, right? Jesus spoke of Abel. If there was an Abel, there was a... Cain. Yeah, uh, well, I'm thinking of his father, Adam. If Abel was there, then he came from Adam, right? right? There you go. 
He spoke of literal events that literally happened within the stream of time. I have no problem believing in a six-day creation. It is fully reconcilable. Anyway, um, faith. We're getting back to faith. All of that. Creation, all of these things. And I don't think somebody that doesn't believe in a six-day creation doesn't have faith. I just think that they haven't considered all of the details that God has put in his word. That's all. I, I was a long-term... Actually, I was an evolutionist. When I met the Lord, it wasn't a salvific issue. I met Jesus, and for how long after that, I believed in evolution. Why? Because that's what they taught me at Riverview High School. And then after reading the Bible the 20th time, I started saying, you know, that doesn't make any sense. And I went through this process in my mind. And finally, I got down to being a short-term creationist. Well, he could have done it in 6,000 years. And then I thought, you know, because a day is like a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years is like a day. So God created everything in 6,000 years. Well, that's just goofy, right? That's me just trying to say, I'm not going to look stupid in my own head. And then eventually I said, well, that doesn't make any sense, Okay. Because you come to Adam, and Adam was created, and then Eve was created, and everything was good on at the end of the first day. has to be, to me, in my mind, I am fully settled that it was a literal six days. Okay, I, I know that was an offshoot, but I'm talking about faith. And the more you read the Bible, the more faith you will have with the... Easier it is, because he, yes. he reveals so much from one spot, he defines in another spot. So that's right, and that's why I brought up Jesus. It's yeah. because he defines in another spot that these were literal stories. Right. They weren't allegorical, they weren't metaphorical, they weren't anything except literal stories to Jesus. And if he is the creator of all things and my redeemer, I'm going to believe him, okay? Sin did not evolve into this planet. Sin occurred by the creation account, literally on a particular day, sin entered man. And from man, from that man died, okay? Jesus took that as an axiom. You cannot evolve into, uh, into uh, original sin. Therefore, man was created and he originally sinned after creation, okay? Charlie Garrett, once again. Don't want to argue. I'm just giving you my, my, my view on it. Um, okay, so, um, oh, I talk about right here. The gospel of Jesus Christ contains the power to bring dead to life, to quicken the spirit of man, which died when... Adam sinned. Funny, I'm thinking the same thing I typed years ago. And being the power of God means that it is completely effectual in its ability to do so. God is the creator, and therefore there is no other power greater than he. He is the ultimate power. If the gospel is the power of God for this purpose, then nothing can thwart it, and its results will be complete in all ways. It is not a deficient salvation that we possess. It is not you can lose your salvation because you've done something wrong or because you've walked away from the faith. You might not have been saved in the first place, and that's not my call. It's God's call. But if you were saved, you are still saved because it is the power to save. It's not the power to lose. Okay? Um, this is evidenced by Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. I've cited it 10 times today. I might as well read it to you very quickly. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. If you can remember any set of verses, you don't have to memorize them, but where they are, and just think it through. Think it through logically. I had a, uh, when I had my Bible sign out on the beach, Bible questions answered, I had a, a, a Church of God pastor walk up to me one day and he says, well, I don't believe in eternal salvation. Then I gave him this verse and I said, well, then what does that mean? And he said, you know what? I never thought about that. And he left oh, and he said, yeah. Really? Because he was trained in the church of God where you can lose your salvation. And he said, you know what? He'd never been presented that theology. But anyway, here's what it says. In him, Jesus, in him you also trusted. A, a trusted is inserted there. He's speaking about. Anyway, 
in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth you heard the word the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed you were sealed with the holy spirit of promise okay it doesn't say in there after having been regenerated in order to being believing it says when you heard you trusted and you believed after being believed you were sealed with the holy spirit of promise who is the guarantee once again if you can lose your salvation then it wasn't a very good guarantee in fact i call it a very crummy guarantee mm -hmm. and i'd say that the cross has very little meaning mm -hmm. that's what i would say about this verse right here it has very little meaning if you can lose your salvation after believing very little meaning and if you disagree with that that's fine to me that is a weak and impotent thing that he did on the cross where we mm -hmm. say i believe in him i'm going to trust him and then later i can lose mm -hmm. my salvation that means that the cross has not the power of God unto salvation. Okay, we'll continue. Um, he is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of your salvation. It doesn't say that. It says to the praise of his glory. It says to the praise of his glory. He has saved you and he will keep saving you despite yourself, despite all of your failings, despite all of your weaknesses, despite the things that people do that come into life that tear them away from being able to be a preacher ever again somebody that I'm very close to that happened to he can never preach again why because he made a mistake in his life and that's what happens in life and someday he's gonna stand before the Lord and he'll get his rewards and his losses for what he's done in his body but he's not gonna lose his salvation I am adamant about that I that is one thing that I will never change no matter what you present to me because I've read this book enough to know when people come to me and they say, I want to give you this verse to think about, I, I guarantee you I've read that verse at least once. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, yes. Talking about salvation. David, Talk loud because you're in the back of the church. David said about salvation. Oh, David, yes. Restore to me the joy of, of your, your salvation. salvation. That's right. The joy. He didn't say, restore to me my salvation. Old Testament, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. It is the work of the Lord. What does it say in Jonah? Old Testament salvation is of Charlie Garrett oh it's of the Lord salvation is of the Lord it has nothing to do with us we exercise our faith the Lord saves right but I'll tell you what if you're in that hole and you're out on that ocean you better have your hand out and ready because you know being saved is to be taken out of something it's not for something like I said that's a benefit of your salvation you are in a pit and you need to be brought out and the Lord will do that okay um, all right um, I gotta get back to my notes where was I um, Hebrews 1 13 14 trust is placed in Jesus and the Holy Spirit then he seals the believer as a guarantee therefore what God has determined cannot be thwarted by any man's actions it is an eternal and unchangeable decision lest God be found to have erred this is the power of God to salvation that Paul writes about and of which he was completely unashamed his lack of shame in this follows on the noted shame of what is brought up what brought it about this is found in Hebrews 12 12 verse 2 my very favorite verse in the Bible so I'll read it to you right now hang on a second here Hebrews 12 you know I could cite it to you but I'd rather just turn to the page and uh, maybe I'll think of something while I'm looking at the words it always helps to uh, to uh, okay I'm gonna read you starting with one therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses all of the by faith this person by faith that person by faith this person 
so great a cloud of witnesses, Moses and Abraham and Rahab the harlot and Elijah and all these other people that he couldn't name because there were so many. They're great cloud of witness. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, which is very easily to ensnare us, and uh, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here it comes. My favorite seven words in the Bible. This not from this version, from the NIV. They translate it, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. You remember those seven words. It will take care of a lot of trouble in your life. Here's what the New King James Version says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the author of it. He's the finisher of it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He bore the shame. And he has all the power in the universe to save and to keep on saving. There is nothing that's going to separate you from the love of God in Christ when you believe. Mm -hmm. Even those two guys that apostatized and walked away from the faith, what was Alexander and Hymenus, mm -hmm. they're, they're saved. They're going to lose their, come on in, come on in. Uh, we get, somebody snuck some pizza. We just had some last week, but some, I didn't order this. This isn't my thing, but uh, put it up on one of these chairs here, and thank you very much. No, it's Tom Alley's birthday. It's Tom Alley's birthday. Yeah, Linda wants it close to her. Thank you so much. Now, have a great day. That's also military bearing. Fixing? Fixing. when you, you in, in navigational purpose, they fix ah, yes. points to know where you're at. That's right. Them. I so like that. Than focusing because you can focus on something as a, to put your target. This is, has to do with a military fix. But when you fix points. something, it is fixed. Yeah, like you just say like navigational purpose. That's right. GPS does that. You fix Three it. Points. Triangulate. That's right. Mm -hmm. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Nothing else. I love. That's a great example. Okay. The cross, uh, speaking of what it just said, Jesus suffered the shame of the cross. The cross was considered the, considered the most shameful method of execution possible. You couldn't find a more shameful method. And guess what? You know, you see the pictures that the, the uh, pictures of Jesus on the cross, and he's always got that little loincloth on. That didn't happen, folks. He was there completely stripped before the world. All right? And that was a picture being made of Adam. He was without sin. He was created in innocence, and he had no shame before God. And then after he sinned became the knowledge of sin and the knowledge that he was naked. And so Christ bore that punishment on himself. But real quickly, so you understand what Christ went through. And this, I'm not going to give you a detailed example of this. You can go back and watch the sermon. But here's what it says here um, to Adam. It says, um, it says, a curse at the ground for your sake. Jesus is called a root out of dry ground in Isaiah. He took that curse upon himself. In the toil of it, you shall eat it all the days of your life, right? The toil of the ground, and Christ came and lived in this, this world. He toiled in the ground. He was uh, raised under a carpenter. He toiled on this earth just like Adam did. He toiled in the gospel. He toiled for the people of the world. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. What did he receive? A crown of thorns placed on his head. He took the curse that Adam got, including the nakedness. It says, and you shall eat of the herb of the field, the Passover lamb, right? The bitter herbs of the Passover lamb. He ate that every year, and then he became the Passover lamb. He had the bitter herbs of the field that he took in our place. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. 
It's a picture of the sweat running down your face and off your nose and dropping onto the ground because you're working in order to eat. And Christ went into the Garden of Gethsemane and he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. He took the curse that Adam was given. God didn't give Adam any curse that we, that he did not himself take upon himself. Every curse that was given to Adam, he took upon himself to show the magnificent wonder of his goodness towards us and his love towards us. It says, till you return to the ground. Oh, that never happened to Jesus, did it? Of course it did. He was put in the grave. Just what Adam happened to Adam, it happened to him. And it says, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Guess what? The one thing that Adam was told would happen to him didn't happen to Christ is because he prevailed over the sin. And so that final part of the curse was broken in Christ. And now we have that same hope, that exact same hope. But everything that is shameful about this world, everything that is degrading about this world, everything that is vile that we do, he took that curse on himself for us. He did all of it for us. It's amazing. If you think of it, he endured the shame of the cross, the most shameful way to die, so that we could be reconciled to him. And salvation isn't eternal. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine somebody teaching that from a pulpit? Christ did all of this for you, and you can lose it because you, you didn't do your work? You've got to be kidding me. All right. Any dignity a person possessed at the cross was taken away there. One was stripped naked and crucified, leaving no possibility of covering oneself. As the body struggled to stay alive, even the act of breathing was brought to humiliation. The lungs filled with fluid and the beautiful voice of the person would never be heard again. Instead, it would be a mixed mixture of gurgling and anguish. The horrors and the shame of the cross of Christ became Christ's resounding cry of victory. And Paul was unashamed to proclaim it. The exact reason... The exact reason is found detailed in Philippians chapter 2. Paul notes that it was God himself who took on flesh and accomplished this deed for his creatures. It says in Philippians 2 verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In the Greek, I believe there's no article there. It's, it's simply a cross death to show the utterly shameful nature of it. Yeah, here's what it says in the original Greek of this verse. There's no definite article because the, before the word cross. Thus Paul highlighted the absolute shame of the cross death. This is what Jesus Christ endured, and this is what Paul found the most honorable of all. What does he say in Galatians chapter 6? Boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. Right? That was it. That's where his boast was. Um, it is also the message that is meant for everyone who believes. There is no person outside of the reach of God's grace, and it comes through one definitive act, belief. It is faith and faith alone which saves a person. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing can take away the life which is granted when that trust is exercised. I say faith alone, but it's God's grace through faith. But it's the act of faith. The message is for all, for Jew first and also for Greek. What Paul is saying here is an order of time, not of priority. The Jew first received the gospel, and it was then transmitted to the rest of the world. This is a confirming thought of what he had just written for everyone who believes. The world is divided in many ways, but the Bible's preeminent distinction is that it is divided as Jew and Gentile. You won't find any greater distinction than that. Male and female is not as great as Jew and Gentile for the purpose of salvation, right? 
This is, uh, the world is, oh, I said that, um, uh, despite the enormous distinction between the two, the gospel message is for and has the same effect on both Jew and Gentile. We're going through Ephesians 3 right now in the daily devotionals, and when we get down to about verse 13 or 14 or somewhere, Paul's going to start. He's almost going to be singing with his pen. It, it's amazing what he's going to be saying in the next 10 days or so with, with these devotionals as they come out. Is He's so excited about what... Uh, let me read it to you. Just so I, I won't give you the analysis. You can go read it online when they come out. But, I mean, it just... It, you can almost hear his, his body and his mind singing as he's writing these words. He says... Um, um, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which has been, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. He's saying that the church is something that the, the angels in heaven could not have even comprehended. The devil thought that he had the whole world in his power, right? God has reserved this one little group of people, and he's going to do what he's going to do with them, and the rest of the world is mine. And he was it was like, what do you call it, a flanking maneuver in the army. When you, you come around and you do something which is completely surprising to the enemy, God said, I'm going to take care of this sin problem. And I'm going to do it. My people are going to be redeemed. And the devil is thinking, oh, go ahead. You know, they're just a couple of people out there. And they're all a bunch of losers anyway. They keep walking away from you. And instead, what did he do? He brought in all of the Gentile people of the world. Unbelievable. Any person, it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how bad you stink. It doesn't matter anything about you. All it matters is that he is there and he has given his life to die for you and to bring you back to himself. And the heavenly principalities and powers could not believe it. He goes on. He says, um, I've lost my place. Hang on a second. He says, um, um, according to the eternal purpose, this is, God had this figured out from the very beginning. They didn't know. But the eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. All right, he goes on, and then he gets down, which I typed this morning, verse 20. He says, all of a sudden, he just breaks into this doxology. He just says, now to him, oh, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I mean, he just couldn't contain himself anymore. As a matter of fact, uh, just uh, uh, two verses before that, or one verse before that, which I skipped over, and listen to this. Listen to what he does. It's, it, it, translations don't get this right. When you read the translation, you don't get the sense of what he's done. He says in um, uh, verse, uh, uh, here it is, verse 18. Oh, let's start in 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may able to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. And he stops. He can't go on. He, 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 his mind can't think, what is he talking about? Everybody else ties this to the next verse, to, the, to know the love of Christ. That's not what he's speaking about. He simply stopped his thought. It's a completely different clause. And he says, to know the length, the width and the length and the depth and the height of everything about God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, everything. And he just stops and he can't go on. So then he goes on to a new thought. He says, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So he, he actually contradicts himself twice in that one verse. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. It's impossible to know it. So he, what he does is he says to know it in the aorist sense. To know it and to keep on knowing it. To learn something new about it. And what he's saying in essence is that we it passes knowledge. Because we're finite we will never have all of that knowledge. Ever. The love of God is greater than all of the knowledge that we could ever possess in all of eternity. It passes our knowledge. And so for all of eternity, we will understand more about the knowledge of God. We'll never understand it fully. It passes knowledge. And then he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Once again, it's a contradiction because you can't be filled with all the fullness of God because we are finite. If we had all the fullness of God, then we would be God. And so he's, he's trying, to, he's struggling with words to tell us the magnificence of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Those will be out in 10 days. But uh, anyway, uh, I typed them in the past two days, and it, it is astonishing to think of what we're going through in this world, in Christ, because of the cross. Imagine it. Okay, um, uh, I thought we'd get two verses today. We did. We, we started on 15, and we're in 16, so we're going to get two verses. Um, um, uh, what does it say here? Uh, the Jew first, the gospel, um, the world, world is divided. I said that, oh, such is the power and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet words as we just saw in Ephesians, cannot adequately describe it. It's not possible to describe what God has done. So here's my question for you. Are you timid in sharing your faith? Are you timid in stepping forward and telling others about the truth that there is but one way to be reconciled to God? It's not a very popular message in the world today. Are you embarrassed to go up and say it to somebody that they might say, well, that's stupid. Ask for strength. Ask for wisdom in this matter and bear in mind that the Lord of creation, Jesus Christ, hung naked and in agony for you. What can man do to you which would be worse than what he himself bore? Now go forth and proclaim this good news. Right? It's not worth it to be timid about this. If somebody pulls out their gun and they shoot you because of Jesus, good. You get to be with Jesus sooner. I mean, there's nothing that they can do to you that can take away the joy of Christ. Nothing. If you get to preach another 50 years about him, great. If you don't, great. Either way, it's a win-win situation. So why would, let the saints of the Lord say so. Thank you. The redeemed of the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Speak. Tell them about him, okay? Um, I, I don't think Sergio has any question for me today. I don't know if he's even watching, but... Um, she said it went, out, went off for a while, it, and then it popped back uh, out. It went off? Well, not went off, but he said that he thought it was over, and I said, no, that's why he called me. Oh, okay, well, anyway, yeah. uh, whatever, Sergio didn't on. say anything. So he didn't understand what was going on. Oh, he was okay. just listening. Oh, okay, I don't know. I, I, Sergio yeah. didn't say that it went yeah. off, so I think everything's all right, Could but we can't get into fun. another verse, or we'll, we've only got another eight minutes, so yes, sir. The gospel grips the mind, stamps the conscience, warms the heart, transforms the life of everyone who believes. Absolutely. I love that. Stabs the heart. You know what? Yeah. You think of what Jesus said about um, uh, the, the rock, everyone who, um, I'm going to misquote it. Yeah, you'll stumble over it. Um, uh, uh, you'll be crushed or you will be um, something. He gives a... a Broke, broken in pieces. One of them is if you trip over it, you'll be broken in pieces, or if something else, you'll be crushed. If the rock falls on them. Yeah, if the rock falls on them, you'll be crushed. Okay, if you stumble over it, in other words, if you come to Christ, you'll be broken in pieces. And I was broken in pieces some years ago. But if I had not, not come to Christ, I would have been crushed to powder. 
right? And there's a big difference between what you do with Christ and what you don't do with Christ. So anyway, um, any anybody got anything else today on these verses? Yes, please. A certain guy I listen to on radio or TV, he goes to uh, Romans 16, 25, uh, being about Paul's gospel. It says, Now unto him who is able to establish you according to my gospels as a benediction, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery which has been kept secret from long ages past, but now it's manifested in the scriptures. It's his gospel. It's God. Paul. Yeah. Paul and what he had to bring, it was hidden. It was, it was not seen. It was hidden until Paul revealed it. And once again, what he just read is a really important verse to understand. Paul says, my gospel. He's not claiming the gospel is his message. He's claiming that what he is giving is the revelation of the mystery. Once again, the apostles in Acts chapter 1, verses 6, 7, 8, right in that area, they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Jerusalem? They're thinking kingdom age. They're thinking Christ is going to sit on the, the throne, that the world is going to be uh, you know, what is promised in the Old Testament. And he says, it's not your uh, for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has placed under his own authority. Go out and get to work. And they still did not understand that something else was happening because the Jews would reject Christ. That's why we can't use the Synoptic Gospels for our doctrine as far as church age matters. Don't do that. That is an error. You cannot use the book of Acts and come to a logical and orderly um, uh, understanding of baptism or of the sealing of the Holy Spirit or any of that. And that's what most churches do, especially charismatic churches. They go to Acts chapter 2. They use it inappropriately, and that's why they have faulty doctrine. And we will go through baptism during the book of Romans sometime. When a logical point comes up, we'll go through it. But baptism is something that is so misunderstood, and yet it's so explicit in the book of Acts. And Paul is the one that will define that for us, what we need to do, when we need to do it. All right? Anyway, uh, we've only got a couple more minutes, so we'll close early, and um, we'll say a prayer. Uh, let's see here. Uh, would you close us in prayer tonight? Me? No, no. Um, um, uh, Bob here. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, uh, this class, this teaching, this body of people that will hear these words and take it out into the world and affect others. We ask that uh, you sharpen our minds to have the right words for the right people at the right time. We thank you for Charlie, and uh, we ask that uh, this day of celebrating both his birthday and Tom's have little bit of joy and fellowship with those that are here. Um, thank you for what you do with our lives. And, uh, we ask to be constantly in your service. Amen. Amen. Okay, sit down for one more second. I, I keep forgetting to do this every week. I want everybody to say goodbye to the folks online, so um, uh, we're going to go to break and then wait until it backs up. And then if you want to turn around, great. If not, just raise your hand and wave goodbye. There we go. We love you all. Have a nice night. Take good care. Bye. All right, bye-bye.